So we have been in a series uh, that we've called The Naturals, The Naturals. Um, and if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and catch up on our podcast. I'm going to do my best to do that for you now. Uh, but the whole idea around the series is, hey, um, there, um, there, there's one thing, really one thing, no matter who you are, where you've come from, what you believe, there's really one thing that all of us naturally do. And, and you've heard the phrase, right? You're a natural, I'm a natural, she's a natural. Oh, yeah, 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 they're just, they're just a natural. What that means is um, that... that all of us and different people have, are natural, have different natural giftings, right? But, but everybody kind of has a natural inclination towards something or some people have a natural ability for something or you've got a natural knack for something, right? Um, to be a natural means there's something you're good at, something you lean into, something, like, something about your personality. Maybe it's something you're inclined to do that nobody taught it to you. Right? Um, you didn't read about it in a book and decided that's how I want to be or that's what I want to do or that's what I'm going to be good at. Um, to be a natural means it's kind of instinctive, like it, it's intrinsic, it's kind of wired into who you are. You're just naturally good at it. You were born with it. Maybe even you were created for it, right? We're all naturally good at some things and we're all naturally bad at other things. Did y'all see that video? If you're in here, I feel terrible, of that girl at KSU that tried to get on a moving treadmill. Is she in here? If not, come see me later, because you're a celeb in my heart, and I want to meet you. That would be amazing. Um, but uh, I don't know why I just thought about that. Literally just hit me. Uh, so anyways, it has nothing to do with the message. Um, but we're all naturally good at things. I feel like she's in here, and I don't want to call anybody out. Come see me after. Won't say anything. Okay, but y'all know her. It is funny. Okay, so I can say this. She's probably not naturally good at working out, okay? Um, <laughs> I didn't want to say that if she was in the room, you know, we try to be welcoming to everybody. Um, Tell her I want to meet her. She's a celebrity. It's the closest thing I'll get to one. And so, um, we're all naturally good at things, not good at things, right? Um, We're all naturals. But, But the series, the series is about the one thing that we all naturally do. The one thing that we all naturally, no matter where you come from, no matter what you do, um, we all naturally worship. We all, all humans, in fact, we said it last week, humans are natural worshipers. Now, when you hear that, I don't mean we naturally worship God. No, no, I mean we, we intrinsically, without even really thinking about it, we intrinsically um, and so easily become obsessed with things. We so easily become consumed with things. We're so easily excited by things and even controlled by things that as humans, there's something inside of us that so easily gives our attention, energy, and affection towards something to such a degree that it would be considered worship. And last week was all about this one idea, hey, there's a lot of things in our lives that maybe you worship that maybe you never thought that you do worship. Um, And we asked this question, right? Hey, is what you worship worthy of it? And so this, uh, not this morning, tonight I want to continue that conversation as we talk about the idea of worship. And what I want to do is I want to kind of broaden your understanding, hopefully, of what worship is actually is and what it actually means um, to worship. See, because when you hear the word worship, my bet would be you immediately um, think of like a time when you sing in church. Like when we say worship, you probably immediately think of those few moments, right, before the message or after the message at the living room when you kind of stand up and sing in worship. And the reason why that is, um, is because we compartmentalize. We compartmentalize. Like, we're really good at compartmentalizing things, and oftentimes worship kind of gets compartmentalized, um, and to compartmentalize kind of means like you divide up certain things in your life, and they get certain categories, and so when we compartmentalize something, it gets our energy and our attention sometimes, and then most of the time, it doesn't get our energy or our attention. And so for a lot of us, right, we compartmentalize worship into this 
few moments during the week at the living room when we sing. And, and we're really good at compartmentalization, not just with worship, but with everything, right? I mean, to, to compartmentalize, imagine like you're kind of like dividing up your life, right? To compartmentalize kind of means you've got all these different categories, all these things in your life that you have to think about, that you're a part of, these different relationships, these things that you do. Um, and and for, uh, for to compartmentalize, essentially, to decide um, which ones you're going to kind of group together and which areas of your life you want to remain independent from other areas. Um, like you kind of, it's like you're setting up dividers in your life. You're kind of setting up boundaries and you don't want certain areas to spill over into other areas, right? You kind of give your attention to this now and then you neglect that and you give your attention somewhere else. Let me give you a really helpful example that I think will maybe clear it up. You know, during Thanksgiving, it's coming up, it's fall, we can talk about it. Um, and, and you get your plate to go fill up your, your Thanksgiving meal um, and you, you fix a plate. I don't know why we say that, but it's a thing. You go fix a plate and you start putting your food on the plate. And for some of you, and maybe this isn't you, but you know someone that's like this, they don't want food to touch, you know? They want it to be exact. And then when gravy gets involved, it's really stressful because that junk runs everywhere, you know? Not worth the stress, I'll pass on the gravy, you know? And so, um, but you don't want your food to touch and you're like kind of organizing it. And you know, like you, you move the green bee casserole with your finger and it's worth it, but then your finger has stuff on it and it's just kind of, you don't know what to do with it. So you lick it and then you got to pick up the spoon that you just, but you don't want your food to touch. And that's what compartmentalization is like. Um, it's like we've got these different areas of our lives and we don't necessarily want them to touch. It might not even happen on purpose, it just might happen naturally, right? Like think about all the different things that you got going on, the different categories in your life, the different compartments of your life, right? You've got like family, work, school, relationships, you've got friend group one and friend group two, right? You've got your fraternity or your sorority, right? Maybe it's friend group three, you've got your intramural sports team, right? Um, you've got things, um, you know, you've got fun things that you do, you've got hobbies that you do, you've got all these different areas of your life. And you know, it's okay if like the mashed potatoes and turkey touch each other, you know what I mean? Like it's cool if friend group one is hanging out and then like sports is involved or like fun is involved but like I don't want mashed potatoes to touch the green bean casserole and especially not the sweet potato casserole um, and so friend group one and friend group two they've got to kind of stay separate right um, faith God and like worship tends to be one of the compartments as well and so maybe for us it's like ah yeah I've kind of got like, like my, my church friends and I've got like my other friends or I don't know that I want faith or God or, or the idea of worship to mix into anything else and we just kind of compartmentalize we we want certain areas of our lives to be independent of other areas in our lives. And guys are really good at this. Guys are so good at compartmentalizing um, <clears throat> because we're simple creatures. And I don't mean that as a compliment. I mean that as like a, it's kind of demeaning because I am one, right? I mean, we are too simple, like caveman simple. Like if you opened up the, the skull of a man and, and you looked at his brain, I'm convinced you open up his brain and you would see tiny little like boxes lined up and when a guy is thinking or talking here's how it works they pick one box they pull the box out and then they open the box and they talk and think about only what's in that box and nothing else like if it's a fantasy football box we are incapable of thinking about anything else you know if it's a conversation about a relationship, we're incapable of thinking about anything else. It's like, okay, I'm talking about whatever it is that's in the box. We're very good at being single-minded. It's like, yeah, what's in the box? And if something out of the box, we don't hear it. It does not register because we're thinking about what's in the box, you know? And so we, we, we close the box after the conversation and we, we put it back in line. And then we go to the next box and we open that box and we talk about that one thing that's in 
the box. We're really good at just compartment to compartment. It's not connected. There's a little space in between each box. They're not connected, you know. And one thing that guys have, um, we have um, what's called the nothing box. It drives women crazy. Um, that we can literally think about nothing. <laughs> we'll be driving, and Julie, my wife, is like, hey, so what are you thinking? And I'm like, nothing. Nothing. And she's like, what do you mean? Like, no, seriously. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm literally thinking about nothing. <laughs> and she's like, how is that possible? I'm like, I don't know. Ask God. You know, like, I'm literally just thinking about nothing. I, it, it's unbelievable, but we can think about nothing. We have a nothing box. And, 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 and guys, you can think about nothing, you know. Um, we're really good at compartmentalizing. <clears throat> then if you open up a, a woman's brain <laughs> and you carefully looked at, at the brain, um, you wouldn't see boxes, you would see like spaghetti. <laughs> because everything is just intertwined with everything. Like you don't know what's what, it's all connected. And even if it shouldn't be connected, it's connected. It's not reasonable, it doesn't make sense, but you don't know where it starts or where it ends, it's just all connected. You're crying because the brownies got burnt, but it's really because you had a conversation with Jen and Econ that started <laughs> with a stranger on the bus because your mom called you yesterday. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense, but it's just all there, and it's all the same, and you can't separate it. It's just, it is what it is, you know? And you remember everything, you know? And you can multitask, and you can think about multiple things, and, and it leaves us in the dust, you know? We can't keep up. It's like spaghetti. What box are we in? You know what I mean? <laughs> you guys are, are beautifully complex. I mean that as a compliment, okay? <clears throat> But even for you, right, like even though, even though you don't naturally, you, you don't naturally compartmentalize like we compartmentalize, here's, here's what I do know, um, is that you do compartmentalize though to a degree. We all do to varying degrees and for different reasons, but, but ladies, right, the reason why you end up compartmentalizing is because everything being connected is exhausting, you know? It's like, man, I just need to disconnect. I need to just like forget about what's going on in this relationship and I just need to get away. I need to focus here. I need to focus my attention here and injury. I need to kind of disconnect. Like psychologically, um, the idea, the, the practice, if you will, of compartmentalization is actually a coping mechanism. Like when life gets crazy, right, and there's so much complexity, um, to cope would be to just compartmentalize. Okay, I'm going to focus here. I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to let my mind go here. I'm just going to live right here until I'm done with right here. I'm going to give my attention, energy, and time here. I'm not going to think about anything else, right? Uh, another coping, you know, another way that it copes is like it helps with work-life balance. You know, like for me, when I go home from work, I try to compartmentalize. I try to shut off the email and disconnect, and I try to let my brain forget about work, and I try to just go home, spend time with my wife, spend time with Netflix. Like I just try to disconnect from everything, um, and so there's a level of where compartmentalization is helpful, but um, the problem with compartmentalization, and there's a few problems with it, but the one that I want to focus on is when we compartmentalize something that was never meant to be compartmentalized. When we try to shove one area, when we try to take one big piece of our lives and shove it into a compartment, um, and that compartment was never meant to hold that one thing, and it should be no surprise, we already kind of talked about it, but the one thing that we tend to compartmentalize that was never meant to be compartmentalized is faith, God, and worship. 
that when you think about faith and God and worship, um, we talked about at the very beginning, but we tend to compartmentalize it to the degree that, that oftentimes um, when it comes to faith or when it comes to God or when it comes even to the idea of worship, if we can just camp out there for a second, it's like a Wednesday night thing. That, that, that worship, we kind of like block things off, we kind of build up barriers, and we don't really let worship or God or faith kind of spill into any other area. We want to keep certain things independent. And when we're here on Wednesday nights, we kind of jump into that compartment and we get really excited about it. And then when we leave here, we kind of leave that compartment as is. In fact, last week we said this. We said that worship, worship is a response. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done. And if that's true, then when we compartmentalize worship and kind of put it in this one little piece block of our lives on the kind of left side of the plate, and we don't let it touch anything else, when, when that's how we treat worship, essentially what we're saying is us responding to God for who he is and what he's done is limited to just a few moments at the living room every week. Um, that it's limited to just those few moments when we're singing a few songs. It's limited to just those few moments after the message, whenever we might sing a song or two. Um, and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he described what worship actually was supposed to look like, when he described what worship actually was supposed to mean to you and to me, he had a much bigger idea of what worship was. In fact, the Apostle Paul, his definition of worship and his idea of what worship actually truly is in its purest and most true form um, was way bigger than just a moment of singing. It was way more impactful and influential in our lives than just a moment of singing. In fact, as you're about to find out, for the Apostle Paul, when he described and defined for us worship, it was not just one category of our lives. No, no, it was a foundational element that influenced and impact every category in our lives. And so I want to look um, at uh, Romans chapter 12, um, looking at verse 1. It's probably one of the most famous verses in all the New Testament. If you've grown up in church at all, you've heard this. But what Paul does for us, is, and this is what it did for me, and I hope it does the same for you, he radically transforms and gives us a brand new understanding of what worship actually is. Is singing a form of worship? Yes. Is that the extent of it? Not even close. So Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, therefore, I urge you, I urge you, this is an exhortation, this is not a command, he's like pleading with the people that he's writing to. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, right off the bat, I love this. He didn't say that true and proper worship is singing or showing up somewhere or going to church and standing up and raising your hand and maybe saying a few words. No, no, it's bigger than that. For the Apostle Paul, when he described what worship was, true and proper worship, it was that we, in view of God's mercy, would offer our bodies, would offer our lives as a living sacrifice. That's massive. And that's a totally different idea of worship than just a moment of singing. He says, in view of God's mercy. See, mercy, mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. Not getting what you deserve. You get pulled over by a cop, and you cry your way out of the ticket, fellas. Um, and I'm not above it, by the way. Um, but you get pulled over by a cop for speeding. 
and he doesn't give you a ticket. That is mercy. You did not get what you did deserve. You did not get what you did deserve. You didn't get the ticket even though you deserved the speeding ticket. Mercy is God not giving us what we ultimately deserve. See, here's what we believe about God, and, and here's what's pretty core to the Christian faith, um, is that all of humanity has this sin problem. That we all have this problem um, where this ugly thing called sin, which just means to, to miss the mark, um, this ugly thing called sin separated humanity from a perfect, loving, heavenly father. And God is perfectly holy, which means he is without sin. Um, and so God and sin are like oil and water. They are incompatible. And so our sin, for, for lack of a better term, made us incompatible with God. And, and the problem with sin was that it derailed everything. Um, and in fact, earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, sin earned us death. Sin earned you and me death. And I don't mean just like we die at the end of our lives, yes, but I mean that, that it earned us eternal separation from God, that literally our sin made it impossible to have a relationship with God. In fact, the Bible tells us that because of our sin, and, and this is, this is going to sound a little crazy, that we were enemies of, of, of God, that sin left us hopeless, that sin left us helpless because there was nothing that we could do to fix this sin problem that I had, that you had, that every human on the planet earth has had. But God wasn't okay. In fact, God knew of our desperation. He saw us in our desperation and he decided to do something about it. And so he sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he went to the cross and he died for our sins. That the death he died was the death that we had earned. But he took it for us. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And then he rose from the grave three days later so that whoever would believe in Jesus, whoever would put their faith in Jesus, that sin problem was now gone. That sin problem was defeated on the cross and in the resurrection and so that we could be reconciled to God. In other words, that we would be made compatible. Now we're not enemies of God, we're a friend of God. That we're sons and daughters of a heavenly father that loved us so much that he sent his only son to die to make things right again. And no longer do we receive the judgment of God. No, no, when God looks down at us, he doesn't see our mistakes. He doesn't see our sins that we still will continue to commit and mess up. No, no, he sees Jesus who died for us. That Jesus makes us brand new. That no matter what your past is, Jesus redeems it. No matter where you've been or what you've done or how far you go, Jesus redeems it. And it's been forgiven that Jesus takes the broken pieces of our hearts and our lives and he brings them back together again. And so Paul had all of that and more in mind when he said, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done for you, in response, in response to what God has done for you, with that kind of sacrificial love and mercy in view, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that word bodies, it means encompassing of our entire lives, not just a compartment, not just, you know, like this friend group one or, you know, um, just this, this intramural team or, or this relationship or this habit. No, no, no. All encompassing of every compartment of our lives. Um, and that word living sacrifice, it's such a cool word picture. In the Old Testament, 
um, what, what would happen was um, Israelites would, would come to the altar, um, and that's where they would offer sacrifices to God. And so they would bring animals, and they would sacrifice animals um, because um, where sin was needed to be the shedding of blood. Again, that's why Jesus' death on the cross forgave them of our sins forever. We don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. There's pretty sure there's laws against that um, now. Um, and so they would go to the altar, and they would sacrifice animals as a form of worship. And so Paul is saying, in view of all that God has done, in view of his mercy, you and I, in response to what he's done for us, are to offer our lives as a sacrifice. Not that we physically die, but that you and I would die to ourselves and basically offer ourselves to God, surrender our lives to God. Basically say, okay, Lord, okay, God, um, whatever your will for my life is what I want for my life. Okay, God, no, no longer am I going to try and, and, and navigate life by myself and do what I think is best. No, no, I want to walk in your ways. That to be a living sacrifice is to surrender your life to Jesus, knowing and believing that what God has for you is better than what you could ever hope for your Self. And Paul says, Paul says that that sacrifice, that type of surrender, what is it? True and proper worship. That that surrender is true and proper worship. True as in it is the most pure form of worship. It is worship as it was intended to be. Come on. There is nothing more worshipful that the very epitome of worship is to surrender your life to someone or something else. To literally give your life, to surrender your life to someone or something else. And so Paul is saying that to surrender your life to a God that loves you and gave everything for you is the truest form of worship possible. And that it's proper. It's proper. That offering our lives, offering my life to a God that gave everything to save me is an appropriate response. You ever seen somebody overreact for something ridiculous? Right? I do this all the time. Every time I stub my toe. I act like the world is coming to an end. I don't know what it is about the toe. There's something about that that I overreact every time. It's not an, a proportional response. When I'm driving, man, I act like someone that doesn't either blink or cussed out my mom. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not a proportional response, right? You go on date one and you start planning the wedding, ladies. That is not a proportional response, you know? Just chill with the Pinterest board, even if they're private. Um, but Paul is saying, hey, the God that gave everything for us, it is a proper response. It is an appropriate offering that, that for us to give of our lives, it just makes sense. I mean, and when we, get, when we begin to understand the desperation that we were in, when we, when we can just even begin to semi-grasp and understand the hopelessness and helplessness that sin put us in, my goodness, maybe we would begin to understand the gravity and the bigness of God's mercy and we would get to a place, we would get to a place where there would be no other response other than, yes, to you I want to surrender my life. And that Paul says. That, now, not just singing, yeah, that's great, and that's a form of it. Not, not just showing up. No, no, it's bigger than that. It's offering up. Paul here is describing worship as a lifestyle. Paul is describing worship not as a moment of singing, but worship as a lifestyle. And I love, I love how uh, the message translation of the Bible um, translates this verse. It says this, take your ordinary, your everyday ordinary life, 
your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, and you're walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Hey, hey, uh, like literally, your, your, your everyday life, your everyday life, that you know what worship is? Worship is in your everyday life, in every way that you can possibly imagine, you would offer yourself to God. That, that in your everyday life, you would, in anything that you do, in anything that you say, anywhere that you go, any relationship that you have, that in all of that, you would live in a way that honors and glorifies God. That worship wouldn't be a moment of singing. Worship would be your lifestyle. That worship would be my lifestyle. A living sacrifice. Because in view of God's mercy, in view of what he's done and who he is, in view of what he's extended towards us, in view of him saving our lives, true and proper worship, pure and a proportional response to God would be surrendering our lives to him and saying, okay, God, whatever your will more than my will, that I'm going to die to my own desires. I'm going to say no to me when I'd rather say yes. When there's a prick in my conscience, I'm going to listen to that, and I'm going to say no to what I really want because I know that what you want is actually better for me. And when we take Paul's words seriously, suddenly, worship goes far beyond just a moment of singing, and it becomes the soundtrack of our entire lives. Not just a moment but a lifestyle. Worship isn't just a category. Paul is saying it's the whole thing. I don't know where in, in church history we decided that worship was just singing. But Paul's probably rolling over in his grave. He's like, did you not read my letter? Did you forget Romans? Did you not, did you not read it? It's way bigger. It's not just a category. It's the whole thing. It's a lifestyle. See, worship. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done expressed in the way that we live. Expressed in the way that we live our lives. But if I could even get really specific for just a minute. Worship, worship is a response to who God is and what he's done expressed in the way that we work. How many of you guys have jobs that you don't like? Or you've got a job and that boss is just a jerk. You hate him. And you're not supposed to use the H word, but you do. How many of you guys have a job um, that you would rather not show up to? How many of you guys have a job that you don't really give your best effort to? Well, if we're going to take the Apostle Paul at his words, then worship, worship would mean we would go into that job and do the best that we can possibly do. Why? Because it is honoring and glorifying to God. That for the Apostle Paul, you know what worship would look like for you? To go into that job and to respect the boss that you don't like. Why? Because it is honoring and glorifying to God. It's worship. That, that you can worship God by going into whatever job that you don't really want to be at, and you would be helpful to your fellow employees. That you wouldn't walk in and just you couldn't wait to leave. That you would, you would walk in and you would do the best. You, you would do that job. If you were at Starbucks, you would make the greatest pumpkin spice latte every time someone ordered it. Why? Because it is honoring and glorifying to God that what Paul is saying is that your worship and my worship isn't just singing, it is the life that we lead. And so students, let me just tell you, you can worship God in the way that you work. That's a big idea. Here's one. That worship is a response to who God is and what he's done expressed in the way that we study. If I can just put on a mom and dad hat for a minute. I'm not a mom and dad. I'm way closer to your age than your parents are. 
But there are some of you that need to take school way more seriously than you do. I mean, can you just think for a moment that you are at a university, so most of you at Kennesaw, maybe at whatever other college you're at, and you get the opportunity to pursue a degree that's going to help change your future, and we act like C's get degrees is okay. I mean, I know some of y'all can't help it, and it's fine. It's all good. I get it. But seriously, come on. Some of you guys just kind of act like school's not a big deal, but did you know, I'm telling you, did you know that you can honor and glorify God with the way that you study? I mean, come on. I don't think you've ever thought about this before, but I'm so glad that maybe you're thinking about it now, that worship is honoring God in the way that you take care of your schoolwork. That worship is honoring God in the way that you study. Worship, for some of you, if you've got a parent that is helping you pay for school, hey, guess what? Worship is you honoring their sacrifice and investment by not taking advantage and actually doing school well. That worship would you be you, you keeping hope or trying to get hope back. Why? Because it is honoring and glorifying God. It's not a performance thing. It is a you've been given this amazing opportunity, um, and Christians should never be lazy. Come on. I mean, I mean, Christians, we, we should be doing everything that we can to honor and glorify God. So the way that you study, hello, it is a form of worship, your everyday, ordinary life. How about this one? Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done expressed in the way that we talk. Come on. The way that you joke, the things that you laugh at, the way that you talk to people. The way that you talk to people is a form of worship. Are we encouraging? Are we uplifting? Do we love on people? If you're overly sarcastic, you need to get a heart check. Because, yeah, we can always be sarcastic and act like it's a joke, but isn't it? So there's always a level of truth in any kind of sarcasm. But the way that we talk to others, the way that we treat and talk to strangers, come on, it is a form of worship. And when we talk to people in a way that builds them up, we are honoring and glorifying God. Worship is a response to who God is and what he's done expressed in the way that we think. The things that we let our minds think about. The things that we let our minds roam and, and, and wrestle with. The, the, the images that we're putting into our minds and then letting, um, let, you know, letting us think about them, fantasize about them. I mean, the way that you think either honors and glorifies and worships God or it, it doesn't. I mean, come on. What are the things you're letting your mind think about? Did you know that if you go out, man, you know, the weather's getting beautiful, and so you might want to go on a date and stargaze. Um, but I'm kidding. You go outside, though, and you look up, and you see stars. And when you think about the bigness of God, that's worship. When you're standing in awe of creation, that is worship. Worship is a response, the last one, to who God is and what he's done expressed in the way that we love. Man, this might be kind of the underlying one above, under all of them. That you and I, to worship God and not love his people is the most hypocritical thing that Christians can do. To, to worship God and not extend love to his people is the most hypocritical thing that we could do. Um, that there shouldn't be anything that would divide us or keep us from extending love to other people. In fact, it was Jesus in John 13 that said, hey, um, the world are going to know that you are my disciples by the way that you love. That Jesus' identification for his followers, that the world was going to know um, that these people are Jesus' followers by the way that they love. 
Come on. Everyone knows Christians worship. They should feel that worship and experience that worship in the way that we love them. That we can't be okay with God if we don't love his people. That we can't come in here and worship God if we are not loving his people. If you're not loving your neighbor, if you're not loving your annoying roommate, if you're not loving your brother or your sister, if you're not loving that person that you see in class every day, if you're not loving that person that's kind of annoying and a little overbearing and wants to hang out with you way too much, but we are failing to worship God if we don't love them. I mean, come on, I could go on and on and on and on. That worship is expressed in the way that you date. That you can honor the person that you date and glorify God in the, the way that you date people and treat people. And that is worship. That you can worship in the way that you keep your commitments, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We could go on in the way that you handle your money, in the way that you spend your money, in the way that you spend your time, in the things that you give your money to. All of that is worship. We could go on and on. Why? Because worship is more of a lifestyle than a moment. That worship is true and proper. So let me just ask you a question. What do you need to bring to the altar? Like, like what area of your life have you just not really been letting go of? What, what, what area do you just come to and say, okay, God, I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to live my life every day in the ordinary, not letting worship be a moment, but letting worship be the soundtrack permeating through my entire life. What do you need to surrender to God? What do you need to bring to the altar? What have you been terrified to surrender to? to God and, and maybe for some of you um, that one thing that you've been terrified to give to God is you your life that maybe there's some of you in here tonight you've never placed your faith in Jesus that, that you've never totally understood the gospel. You've never understood why Jesus had to die on the cross. That maybe for the first time you're hearing Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the grave three days later. Maybe that's clicking for the first time ever. This idea that we were desperate and hopeless without sin and then Jesus came and saved us from all of that so that we could have a relationship with God and spend eternity and so if that's you tonight, um, I just want to give you an opportunity, uh, maybe for the first time tonight, to place your faith in Jesus. Um, and so what I'm going to do, I'm going to lead you through a prayer. I'm going to lead us all through a prayer here in just a moment. And, and if that's you tonight, if, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus before, if tonight, man, you're linging, yeah, okay, I, 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 I want to surrender my life to the one who saved me. I want to give you an opportunity to verbalize what God might be doing in your heart. So we're just going to close our eyes and, and bow our heads. Um, and if that's you tonight, I just, I just want you to repeat this prayer after me. The prayer doesn't save you. It's just a way to help verbalize what God is already doing in your heart. And so if that's you, I just want you to repeat this prayer to yourself after me. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. I confess that your work on the cross was enough to save me from my sin. I want to live my life surrendering it to you. Let's keep our heads down and our eyes closed. 
if that was you tonight, just out of curiosity, if you would just, no one's looking, if you would just pop your, your hand up or make eye contact with me. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I see you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you for life, and thank you for your love, and thank you for your mercy, and thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us, so that we could have a relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give students in the room, and even myself, give us all the courage to surrender areas of our lives that we've been holding on to. I pray that you would give all of us and myself the courage to bring to the altar something that we've been afraid to surrender to you in hopes of it leading us to leading a life where we're a living sacrifice and worship goes far beyond just a moment of singing but worship becomes a lifestyle that permeates everything that we do, everywhere that we go and every relationship that we have. We love you, and it's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray.